0: Time, wrong place, mistakes. Cold case,
1: now a chase, no brace. Unsafe is the faith in the faith. It's a cold case, it's a cold, cold case. You're as sick as your secrets. Welcome to season two of Coke Case MHS. Wrong time, wrong place, mistakes. Well, real education meets real life. I am your host, Randy Hubbard, and the instructor of Cold Case MHS, and we thank you for listening. Millions of people board planes each day to travel all over this world. I'm sure all of us have had to drop a loved one off or pick someone up from the airport. You stand there anxiously awaiting their arrival. Now today it's a little bit different because usually that person has sent you a text message saying, hey, we're on the ground, I'll see you soon. But back before cell phones, all you could do was wait. You knew what time they took off and you knew what time they're supposed to arrive. So it was always exciting to see them walk off the plane. But what if they didn't? You continue to watch that door until no one else comes out. Then panic begins to set in. Where are they? Why didn't they get off? Now you have to leave the airport and go home and find out, well, they just missed their flight. But what if that call never comes? They just vanished into thin air.
0: It's a cold case. It's a cold, cold case.
2: February 13th, 1980. The luggage of one Bobby Lee Wells arrived in Birmingham, Alabama, but there was no trace of Bobby. In fact, she was never seen alive again. Bobby Lee Wells lived in Taylor, Michigan in 1980. She had a husband and a two-year-old daughter with her in Taylor. Her extended family, however, lived in Alabama, hence the trip back to her hometown. Unfortunately, she never made it back home. Instead, she vanished off the face of the earth until April 13th, where her body was recovered, not in Michigan, not in Alabama,
3: but in Fulton County, Ohio.
4: I can't imagine what I would do if one of my loved ones went missing for a few days, let alone two whole months. And
3: what's interesting is that Bobby wasn't reported missing until three days later, on February 16th. Well,
5: she was supposed to be on vacation, so it would make sense that her husband wouldn't realize she went missing until a couple of days later.
3: Still, wouldn't she have called once she landed? Maybe,
5: but we have to remember that this was in 1980. Mobile phones weren't around yet, and it was probably more common to have less digital communication with
1: others. Time and technology, two major factors in solving cases today. With cell phone towers and social media and investigators trained just for these duties, timestamps and locations can be found at record pace. But we're talking about 42 years ago in two small towns where you could drive a long way and not see or hear anyone. A time when a phone call to say, hey, I made it, would come from a landline several hours, or if a person forgets, maybe even days. On that cold night in 1980, time stood still with no technology to find Bobby.
4: Definitely. Since this case was so old, we actually ran into a couple of problems. It's just about 42 years old, so some of the people we wanted to contact have passed away. Also, there was not much information available besides a couple of newspaper articles since most of the information was never digitized.
2: Through the few newspaper articles we found, we were able to piece together that Bobby was found by two 17-year-old boys wrapped tightly in a sheet in Fulton County, Ohio. She was determined to be killed by blunt force trauma, two blows to the back of the head from a, quote, hammer-like object, end quote. The date of death, unfortunately, was undetermined because she was in a shallow area of water and the cold weather prevented decomposition. She was fully clothed and did not appear to be sexually assaulted, and her wallet and other identification was found by her body.
1: In forensic science, we do a lab in which we leave pork roast outside and let it decompose over time. Students have to look at several different factors to try to determine how long it's been there. So decomposition is often used to determine the PMI, or the post-mortem interval, which basically is the time that the body was placed out there to the time that it was found. Now this is done by using many different factors, and that usually is the use of insects, mainly flies and maggots. That is because they have a very distinct life cycle. The problem in Bobby's case is the fact that she was found in the cold weather and she was also found in water. These two things can drastically delay decomposition, so exact time of death or the time she was placed there is very difficult to determine.
3: Our next step was to contact the police departments that were involved and see if they could provide us with more information on the case.
4: In order to receive the information we wanted, we had to utilize the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. Since these documents were held by police departments, we had to send a FOIA request to appeal to the Ohio Open Records Law that will allow us to access the documents we wanted.
2: We sent these requests to Taylor, Michigan Police Department, where Bobby was reported missing, the Fulton County Sheriff Department, where her body was found, the Ohio Bureau of Investigation,
3: and even the Federal Department of Justice. We got a quick response from the Taylor, Michigan Police Department. Unfortunately, it wasn't the response we were looking for. They denied our request on the grounds that it was an invasion of personal and family privacy. Next, we tried the
5: Department of Justice, where we were unsure if we could get any information from the Department of Justice because they would only get involved if she was proven to have been kidnapped across state borders. Since she went missing in Michigan and was found in Ohio, we were hoping that they would have some of the information we were looking for. After some back and forth, they told us that they didn't maintain the record that we were requesting.
4: From the Ohio Bureau of Investigation, or BCI, they told us that the case was still under investigation and that the BCI wasn't able to provide us with the documents that we requested. They suggested that we contact the Fulton County Sheriff Department, since they are the most likely to be able to provide us with information.
3: When we reached out to Fulton County, the prosecutor told us that the specific documents we requested, such as the initial report documents, the 911 call, and the autopsy report, weren't considered public records, so he was only able to send us a newspaper clipping.
1: Okay, so let's talk about those FOIA request loopholes. Now, by law in all states, as a citizen, you have the right to request public information. But what is public information? Usually, public information are things that are gathered by government entities, like public schools, city councils, state government offices, or in other words, departments your tax dollars pay for. Police departments fall under those types of offices, but due to the sensitive nature of their work, police departments also have the right to deny information in an open or still under investigation case. Legally, they can give you everything, but they also have the right to give you nothing. The biggest debate is that term open case. Is someone at that moment actively looking for a new lead? Are they retesting evidence? Is the case going to the prosecutor? Or is that just sitting in a file cabinet somewhere and the business line to use on a FOIA request is due to the case still being considered an open investigation, your request has been denied. Now, I know the police departments want to solve these cases and their work is tremendous. In some of those, maybe they do have to have information withheld because only the killer would know that information. But my question is, what could that possibly be in a case that's 40 years old? Maybe a new perspective is just needed.
5: Even though it's just one article, we actually learned a lot from it. A detail that the newspaper revealed is that our victim was carrying $8,000 in cash on her. Today, because of inflation, that sum would be almost $27,000. The fact that Bobby was not sexually assaulted and the cash was missing from her person would imply that it could have been robbery.
4: Another crucial bit of information we found out is that Bobby's husband went in to do a lie detector test, but the polygraph results were never released.
1: Polygraphs. Everyone hears about polygraph tests in an investigation. We all want to know, what did the polygraph say? Did they pass? What if they didn't pass? All of those are very intriguing questions, but in reality, Polygraphs are one, not public record unless released by the police, and two, they're not used in court due to the fact that some people can fail but not be guilty at all, and others can pass and can be guilty as heck. The purpose of the polygraph test is to help police departments determine if more questioning needs to occur of that individual, or is it just time to move on?
5: I wish we could have gotten the results from that. It makes sense that her husband was questioned. A lot of the time, when a female is murdered, it is typically the husband or boyfriend at fault.
2: It is important to note that we are not accusing or incriminating anyone. There was no named suspect in the official investigation, so anyone we discuss is not a real suspect and merely speculation. Another piece of information we gained from the newspaper clipping sent to us by the prosecutor is that Bobby's plane had a brief layover in Toledo, Ohio, which could explain why her body was found less than an hour away from Toledo. This brought up a whole new set of questions, with a new pool of possible suspects, including an incriminated killer, James Dean Worley. When picking a case to research, we stumbled across Bobby Lee Wells's case by looking at the series of killings that were vaguely connected by this single suspect. These cases were connected due to proximity and victim type, all around
5: Fulton County, Ohio, and all young women from ages 15 to 30. We began looking into the possibility of this Worley being involved in this case. We requested and received files from the case that Worley was tried and felt guilty for, the murder of 20-year-old Sierra Joggin. Although he was only convicted for the murder of Sierra Joggin, evidence found on his property indicates that she may have not been his only victim. In recent years, the FBI have actually excavated the grounds in search for more evidence or bodies.
1: Could she really be the victim of a serial killer? Was Bobby just in the wrong place, at the wrong time?
0: Wrong time wrong place, Cold case, chase, no
2: Most serial killers have a specific method in which they kill. This method is called a signature. By reviewing the case files of Sierra Jaugen, we were hoping to find connections to the Bobby Lee Wells case. Bobby's body was recovered only a handful of miles away from where James Worley lived.
3: Although these cases may seem like they could be related, Wouldn't the time between them make this extremely unlikely? Sierra was murdered in 2016 and Bobby in 1980. That's 36 years. Not only is that a long time for a killer to be dormant, but age could debilitate the energy of a killer.
4: That's a good point. But remember that Worley was not only charged for murder, he was also charged for abduction. In 1990, Worley attempted to kidnap a girl named Robin Gardner, who luckily escaped from Worley. This shows that he could have just been a very dormant serial killer with years in between each offense, or, more frighteningly, that he's killed more people than the police previously thought.
5: Bobby could have just been his first victim. When we were looking into the files on Sierra Jalkin's case, we found an interview with Worley's mother. She mentioned that Worley had a girlfriend who died in a car crash. According to her, the girl was 18 to 20 years old. If we look at the dates, Bobby was killed in 1980, and in that year, Worley would have been 21 years old. The death of his girlfriend could have been the catalyst or trigger that started him on a rampage.
3: Statistically, most people kill within their age range. One of these exceptions to the rule is if a serial killer has a specific type, such as 15 to 30-year-old Caucasian girls. This would explain why Worley went after Sierra when she was 20 and he was 57 years old, quite a bit older than she was.
4: This brings up an interesting point because when Worley's girlfriend died in the car accident, she wasn't the driver. Worley could have blamed the girl who was driving and based his type after her, perhaps attempting to avenge the death of his girlfriend. Of course, this is all just speculation and theorizing.
5: We have exhausted our investigation trying to find his deceased girlfriend, but so far, the leads have been scarce. We may have a lead concerning a 1976 yearbook, but we haven't been able to gain access to it yet.
1: Now Worley is an easy candidate to put in the crosshairs to this investigation. Bobby was found close to some of his alleged victims and he has been sentenced to death in the state of Ohio. Now not that it would make her death any less painful if a guy like Worley had committed it, but at least you would know it was by a guy from a random encounter and not someone that may be close to Bobby or her family.
3: It's this deep research and out-of-the-box thinking that is taught to us in our cold case class. We are taught to exhaust all our leads, even if it means tracking down a 46-year-old yearbook. When investigating, it is just as important to find out what didn't happen as what did.
2: One of our top priority goals was to find the daughter of Bobby Wells and see if she could give us new information. Although she was a mere two years old at the time, too young to remember anything, she still would have knowledge of the habits and family that no outsider would be able to know.
4: Luckily, her daughter, which for privacy on this podcast we will refer to as DW, short for daughter Wells, was extremely kind and willing to share her knowledge with us.
3: With all the information that DW gave us, we were able to paint a visual of what Bobby Lee Wells was like before her untimely death.
2: Bobby Lee Wells was born on November 16, 1949. She lived near Birmingham, Alabama, and had a full and very religious family with five brothers and four sisters. After high school, she went to college at Auburn University, where she studied to become a nurse. Not only was she getting an education, but she also fell in love. Still down south, Bobby got married and had a beautiful baby girl, DW, in 1976. She, along with her daughter and husband, moved to the suburbs of Taylor, Michigan to get a fresh start up north. February 13, 1980, Bobby bought a plane ticket from Taylor, Michigan to Birmingham, Alabama, to pick up DW, who was staying with her extended family at the time. And, unfortunately, we know the rest from here. Bobby disappeared for two months, only to be found again with two blows to the back of her head in Fulton County, Ohio. However, this family life is not as picturesque as it would seem. Like all families, there were darker secrets. DW explains the hidden side of her family when we interviewed her.
6: I mean, what I know about her is that she worked as a nurse. Um, I have heard that... um, She was using drugs that she got from the hospital, um, and that so was my father. I know that after her death in the years following that I do remember, I know my father had a lot of drug problems.
4: This information is crucial when we look at victimology. Victimology is a way to break down the life of the victim and identify parts of their life that put them at risk. Physical characteristics are a large part of victimology. Bobby was Caucasian, 5'4", and around 120 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. These characteristics show that she has a small build and could be easily physically overwhelmed by an attacker. This makes her an easy target. In addition, the fact that she may have been involved in drugs makes her a high-risk victim. Despite the fact that she may have been doing drugs, her death was still extremely tragic and undeserved. We are not looking for a reason for her murder or claiming that it was her fault. Instead, we are looking for the ways these habits could, unfortunately, put her in a higher risk situation that could have resulted in her death.
1: Let's talk about the misunderstanding of the term victimology. Many people hear this and say, wait, how can you blame the victim? Like Nicole stated, in no way are we blaming the victim. Actually, it may be saying just the opposite. Victimology is studying the victim's habits, financial status, their likes, dislikes, and their fears to find something that may have changed during their life. Dr. Laura Petler says in her book, Crime Scene Dynamics and Homicide Cases, that victimology can be expressed through Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, Maslow stated that we have five stages of growth that we must go through during our life. And there are certain needs that have to occur during those stages. What victimology does is find that one or two needs that has not been met and figure out what changes their routine to possibly put them in an environment that could be dangerous.
3: For example, Bobby may have been planning to leave her husband through that flight to Alabama, quite possibly splitting due to the usage of drugs. When we
5: asked DW for the reason why her mother would be carrying $8,000 in cash, she speculated that Bobby may be trying to leave her husband.
6: Because I know I was in Alabama at the time visiting her family, well I think it was her family, um, or it might have been my dad's family, they were both from Alabama, uh, but I think it was her family. And she was, I've, I, is, I've been told, I think by her family maybe, that she was planning to leave him, like leave my father, mm-hmm. um, and he was a prime suspect in all of this.
4: Bobby's husband, who we will refer to as Mr. Wells, was put under a microscope in the official investigation. As we mentioned earlier, was brought in to take a lie detector test. Nothing came of these investigations, but suspicions and rumors still ran rampant in the family. It is important to remind again that we are not accusing or naming anyone as a suspect, but Bobby's side of the family definitely had their own opinions on what could have happened to Bobby. After her death, Bobby's side of the family refused to return DW to Mr. Wells.
6: I think the only two things based on the little information I know is that A, if she was planning to leave him, maybe she was planning to leave him then and not come back. Mm -hmm. Um, and, or B, if she was involved in drugs in some way, maybe it had something to do with drugs. I don't know.
4: Um, after the, after the incident, do you mind, like, telling us a little bit about that? Like, how did your father react? Like, what was the situation, sort of? Um,
6: I don't really know how he reacted, because, again, I was too young to remember. But I know that, um, there was a period of time, and it may have been immediately after or, or not too long after where I guess in his from his perspective, they kidnapped me or I was staying with them and they refused to send me back with him. So when he came to get me, I wasn't where he thought I would be. And like, it took a long time and he had to go to court and the judge finally forced her family to like, turn me over. But there was, there's a, a ton of them. Like she had a ton of brothers and sisters. And apparently one of them, worked at or ran like some kind of boys and girls camp. And like, I guess they had me staying there so that like uh, my dad couldn't find me. And so it took a really long time, I guess, of like him trying to find me and the police like kind of staking out all their houses. And they finally went to court and there was a whole hearing. and, um, And then I guess they were forced to like, kind of give me back.
5: Another important reminder is that every interview or retelling will always have bias. It's not always intentional. Some events are unconsciously forgotten or changed, especially over long periods of time. Most of the information that DW gave was second-handed information, so everything must be taken with a grain of salt.
1: But every grain of salt is built from smaller particles, and each piece is very important to this case.
3: Mr. Wells, however, continues to proclaim his innocence 41 years after Bobby's tragic death. He too is aware of the recent theory that James
6: Worley may be
3: involved in the death of Bobby Wells.
6: Um, he forwarded me an article, like there was a news article about like a serial killer who'd been arrested recently and her name had come up as like a potential victim because there were a bunch of women who'd been killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was like weird that he sent it to me because I don't know why he would even know about it.
4: DW was such a big help in uncovering a lot of information we didn't previously know. The crazy thing about this case being so old is that it's practically impossible to find information on Bobby without doing an intense, deep dive through old newspapers. There's a singular article online that only briefly mentions her.
3: We have gathered so much new information for Bobby, so her story continues to be told and her case continues to be researched. We went from not even knowing her birthday to meeting her child, and we can only hope to find more information that can bring closure to this case.
2: We are currently continuing our investigation efforts and reaching out to Bobby's family and friends. If you know any information about Bobby or this case, please don't hesitate to reach out.
1: Please contact the Fulton County Sheriff's Office at 419-335-4010, or you can contact us at coldcase at masonohioschools.com. I'd like to thank this group for their hard work in bringing Bobby's story back into the light. Bobby Lee Wells may have left this earth, but her story is still not finished until justice is found. Thank you to DW for speaking with our students. Even though you were young when this happened, I'm sure growing up without your mother was difficult. From what we know about DW, I'm sure that Bobby is looking down. Very proud of you. I would like to thank a couple other people who have helped us along the way. Mr. Jimmy Carson of Eagle Cold Case Investigations in North Carolina. Jimmy came in and taught our students how to collect data and how to organize it and get ready for our presentations. And retired Detective Scott Thomas, who has answered all of my text messages and emails at any time of the day. And I really want to say that we really appreciate your help. Some of the music in this podcast comes from Purple Planet Music. The theme song was written and performed by Ms. Jenna Brandt, a former student of MHS. This song and all her songs can be heard on any music streaming media. The artwork for this podcast was done by former student Emma Holbert. Stay tuned for our next episode of Ms. Dondi Hickman, when generosity stabs you in the back.
5: December 27th of 2008, Priscilla Don Hickman, also referred to as Dondi, was last seen in person by her family at a holiday party. A time filled with joy and celebration turns sour, quickly.
0: Wrong time, wrong place, mistakes, cold case, now a chase, no brace, unsafe is the faith in the faith, it's a cold case, it's a cold, cold case, you're as sick as your secrets and I can't conceal, it. Eh? It's a cocaine Can't make-